Welcome to Lectio Continua, a podcast of Grace OPC in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Pastor Brian DeYoung. This is Lectio Continua Acts, Episode 2. In our first podcast, I introduced you to what we're trying to do and why we are trying to do it. I hope that that was helpful for you. If you've just now stumbled across the second episode, you may want to go back to the first episode and listen to that just to get your bearings and also to hear the first sermon on the series from the book of Acts. I might also encourage you to do a few other things. Perhaps most importantly, we welcome feedback, including constructive criticism. Now, if you're just wanting to hate on things, if you want to hate on preaching, on the Bible, on Reformed theology, if you want to hate on Lectio Continua preaching, that's not going to be so helpful. But if you're a sympathetic listener with some constructive ideas on how we can do this job better, then we are all ears. And please feel free to respond with your helpful comments. A few people have already said, hey, there's some audio problems with the sermon. There's a lot of heavy breathing sounds and other strange mouth noises. Well, yes, I'm aware of that fact. And that's partially because the microphone which I use in our worship services for preaching is right there at my mouth and picks up almost everything. And that's necessary so that my voice can be amplified in the sanctuary during the sermon and during the service. However, it's not great for preaching and it doesn't give me the clean type of recording that I can get when I have my nice mic in my recording studio here at church. And I'm not sure that there's anything I can do to eliminate that entirely. I am going to try to do a little editing with each sermon, but there's also just a lot of material there to work with, and I don't know that I have time to go through with a fine-tooth comb. So that's probably just something you're going to have to live with. I hope it's not too annoying. If you do listen to these sermons on the Sermon Audio website, you would hear all of those mouth noises and breathing sounds and everything else anyway. So if you have other helpful comments, again, we are very willing to hear those and would like to hear what you have to say. You can reach us through our Grace OPC website. That's www.graceopcsheboygan.com. Or you can go through our Sermon Audio website. That is www.sermonaudio.com slash Grace Sheboygan. Another encouragement that I would give you would be to share, rate, and review the show on the various platforms where this podcast is available. And if you know someone who you think would be interested and encouraged by this kind of a podcast, please feel free to pass it along to your friends, share it on social media, anything like that. We just want to get the word out. So here in our second episode, we're moving right along in the first chapter of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, and the title of the sermon is Spirit-Empowered Witnesses. So I will begin by looking at Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Then we are going to consider a perplexing question, and we finish the sermon with the mission of the apostles. So without any further ado, here is the next sermon in the series. Enjoy.
Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. As you know, we have both an Old Testament and a New Testament reading that correspond more or less to one another. So as I read verses 1 through 8, listen for two things. Listen for the Holy Spirit and listen for witness. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, Belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Now we turn in the New Testament to Acts chapter 1. Reading verses 4 through 8. And again, listen for the Holy Spirit. And listen for... Witness. Gathering them together, he, Jesus, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is so consistent and altogether true. Bless now your word by your spirit to the hearts of your people. For we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. When I first committed my life to Jesus Christ, there was one thing that terrified me. What was so very scary, you ask? What frightened me most was the thought of sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. Evangelism was downright terrifying. I had grown up in an atmosphere where people were very private about their faith. They might hold strong convictions, but they never spoke about those beliefs publicly, especially to those who might disagree with them. I remember the first time that I tried to talk to someone about the gospel. It was a college roommate, a man named Jim. And Jim was very patient as he listened while I tried to explain. He even thanked me for taking the time and having the concern to share with him. But looking back over that, I think it was a pretty poor effort. Very disjointed, uh, somewhat unclear. But I survived. I survived to do it again. And the next time I tried, it came just a little bit easier, and I think it was more coherent. It was still scary, but it wasn't debilitatingly scary. And as I got better and grew in my confidence, I really started to enjoy evangelism. Then I had the opportunity to lead someone to Christ, to see a good friend be spiritually born again before my very eyes. And even to this day, it is a high point that has only been matched by the physical birth of my six children. I believe that spiritual rebirth is every bit as exciting as seeing a physical birth. Well, maybe you are like I was. Maybe the idea of sharing your faith with an unbeliever scares you speechless. Maybe you think you could never do evangelism, much less be an evangelist. Well, if that describes how you feel this morning, then this is the passage for you. I have here good news that will equip you to boldly tell others about Christ. As we walk about this text, I want to consider first the city of the great king. Then we're going to face a perplexing question. And finally, look at the ministry and the mission of the apostles. As Jesus gathered with his disciples in those final days before his ascension into heaven, he had several commands for them. The first regarded their location. At some point, as we saw at the end of John's Gospel, the eleven disciples had been in Galilee, fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus didn't want them to remain in Galilee. He wanted them to remain in Jerusalem. And so his instruction was to return to Jerusalem and not to leave Jerusalem. 
And in Jerusalem, he wanted them to wait there, to wait for what the Father had promised. But why Jerusalem? Wasn't Jerusalem hostile territory? Wouldn't they all have been much safer in Galilee? Though conventional wisdom might have advised anywhere but Jerusalem, the Lord thought differently. And after all, this was his city, the city of the great king. Where else should David should great David's greater son rule and reign but in Zion? And was not Jesus a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem, the king of Salem? Jesus is the royal high priest. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. Jerusalem belonged to him, and he claimed it as his very own. From Jerusalem, his kingdom would extend until it covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. Jesus had designated Jerusalem to be the epicenter of an earth-shaking event that would begin at Pentecost and would send its aftershocks throughout the whole known world. And so you say, why Jerusalem? Why not Jerusalem? It's the obvious place. Toward the very end of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, there is a section that was sadly left out of the movies. And that section is called The Cleansing of the Shire. In those chapters, the hobbits return to their home and they find it infested with wicked men and evil influences. So they rally their fellow hobbits to clean out the filth, to cleanse their community. Well, Jesus sends his apostles to carry out the cleansing of Jerusalem, just as he himself had cleansed the temple in the days leading up to his death on the cross. Jerusalem badly needed disinfection. And that was the first order of business. As the apostles would be in Jerusalem, they should be waiting on tiptoes of anticipation for the promise given by God the Father. Through Christ, the Father had promised to send forth the Holy Spirit. And this is what the eleven were awaiting, the coming of the Spirit. Jesus puts it very powerfully in verse 5. While John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit is coming upon you. He will cleanse you. He will purify you. He will refresh you. He will embolden you. You need to be drenched in and with the Spirit of God. That is absolutely crucial. Now, when you bring these two things together, the city of Jerusalem and the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit... 
you can sense that a gigantic change is about to take place. A huge transition in redemptive history is about to be undertaken. We are standing at the threshold of the new covenant and the birth of the Christian church. It's hard to overemphasize the importance of these developments because this is truly monumental. Now, this is really important for our whole reading of the book of Acts. It's not just more of the same, as if things are just kind of happening in these episodes of this endless serial that just keeps playing out, and each episode is roughly the same as the past episodes. No, we're, we're reaching a point of tremendous change. Things are about to happen that completely rearrange the landscape of the entire universe. And, and as we read through this book, we're going to see that happening in chapter 2. And then we're going to see how everything flows out of chapter 2 because the Spirit has come and now everything is different. Which is simply to say that we don't read our Bibles in a kind of flat, linear fashion where everything is just more and more of the same old stuff. There's great peaks in the story of the Bible, and we're coming up on one of the most profound peaks. Well, in the midst of this cataclysmic announcement by our Savior, the disciples ask a question that I think is frankly perplexing. And their question is this, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And I think a stranger question is hard to imagine. Now, before we think about the various issues raised in their question, we need to get our bearings as to what kind of question this actually is. Is this an informed question about spiritual realities? Or is it a political question about the governmental situation in Palestine currently? Or is this a nationalistic question, a patriotic inquiry by good Jews about the Jewish nation and her prospects? So we have to step back and say, what are they thinking? What is it that lies behind this question? One way that some have tried to answer this is by looking at Jesus' response and deducing things about the question from how he answered them. His answer comes in verses 7 and 8, where he first tells them, it is not for them to know times or epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And that seems to be answering at least part of the question. But then what he goes on to say there in verse 8 has no direct corollary in their question. 
you look at verse 8 and you say, how does that relate to what they asked? It doesn't seem to have any obvious connection. So is he here basically ignoring their reference to Israel? Well, some scholars have answered these sorts of questions by giving the disciples the benefit of the doubt. Their mindset has changed, they say. And the disciples aren't asking the same sort of block-headed questions that they had previously posed. And so, some have suggested, this is an appropriate question about spiritual Israel, namely the church. But others think this is far too generous to the apostles. John Stott, for instance, thought that this was a very faulty question along a number of different lines. So the opposite view is to say that this is the disciples being the disciples. Still thinking more about the political and national concerns for Israel than about Jesus' messianic kingdom. Well, for my part, I tend to be just a bit skeptical about the apostles at this point. Maybe they are showing us one last time how very much they needed the Holy Spirit. Because in and of themselves, they simply couldn't break free from first century Jewish expectations of a political Messiah who would free Israel from Roman domination. That sort of thinking was woven into the fabric of first century Judaism. Messiah was a political savior first and foremost, and they are still somewhat trapped in that old mindset. And so Jesus ignores much of their question and indicates that they're certainly off base to ask about the timing. Now, before we're scornful of these apostles, we have to admit that we're pretty locked in with our American perspective, too. When we become Christians, and even as we grow as Christians, we do not immediately shed everything about American culture. And I can prove that point with a simple illustration. You go to Culver's or any fast food restaurant, and you stand there, and there's two people in front of you, and you start faunching around. And you're thinking in your head, why don't they open up another register? And then, as you finally get to the counter to place your order, and the cashier turns out to be a kind of new trainee who doesn't exactly know everything and has to ask the manager which button to push to order the shake you want to have, you're thinking, come on, get on with it. This is supposed to be fast food. And you feel that starting to well up within you. Is that a Christian attitude? No. That's your American love for instant things. That's why we love microwaves. We're very caught in our Americanness. 
And it's hard to break out of your cultural situation, especially if you've been raised in a culture and it's always been around you, bathing you, shaping and molding you. You can't just say, shake it off and say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't think like an American anymore. Well, these men had been raised in this, this situation where always it had been said and believed by everyone that when Messiah comes, he's going to throw off Roman tyranny. We will be a free and independent nation again. Caesar will have no more control of us. And these, these men couldn't shake that. They were still caught in that. That's why they need the Holy Spirit. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, they're never going to break free from it sufficiently to carry out the ministry they need to carry out. And so, yeah, it's not a great question, but it's somewhat understandable. We can have some sympathy for them. Because that's just how Jews thought at that time. So there are three issues then that are raised in their question, all of which are answered either explicitly or implicitly. And the first and the most obvious issue is the timing. When will it happen? Is it now? Is now the time? And as to this question of timing, Jesus couldn't be plainer. It is not for you to know times or epochs. The Father has set those by his own authority, and he hasn't told you. And he won't tell you. So don't waste your time asking. Timing is not something you should be concentrating on. It is nothing but a waste of your good energy. Pour all that energy into your work as witnesses. Don't waste it on a meaningless pursuit. You might say to yourself, well, yeah, that's pretty clear. I'm glad we don't have any problems with that. Why is it that over the last four or five decades, there have been a constant, constant stream of books predicting the second coming of Christ on this date or that date? 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. That was one of my favorites. And why is it that when he doesn't return as scheduled, a reconsideration produces another book about the new date. And why is it that people, Christian people, continue buying these books about the date of Jesus' return? Because we love dates. We love timing. We want to know when is it going to happen? Is it now that it's going to happen? And again, we can't be so very critical of these disciples. Yeah, they're asking a dumb question about timing, but we would ask much the same dumb types of questions if we had been there. The human mind loves a good chronology. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about the chronology. God the Father has set these times, these epochs. You don't need to worry about that. 
You concentrate on what you're supposed to concentrate on. He'll take care of the timing, and you'll be none the worse by just doing what you're supposed to be doing without worrying about when. The next issue is the issue of Israel. Is God's plan going to have an impact on Israel and her national and political fortunes? And the answer here is yes and no. No, in the sense that Christ's kingdom is no longer going to be focused on any one nation. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom will go international. Israel will no longer be the object of special attention going forward. And so Israel's hour has come to an end. And when we get to Pentecost, who is there? Inhabitants of every nation under heaven. And as the gospel goes forth, it goes to the ends of the earth. The new covenant is an international concern. And it is no longer restricted or limited to one particular nation. So, no. But then, yes, in a sense. Yes, in the sense that the clock is ticking for Jerusalem, Israel, and the temple. As Jesus had said in the days leading up to his resurrection, within 40 years, Jerusalem would be destroyed for her failure to repent. And so the kingdom is not going to be restored in Israel or to Israel. Rather, the kingdom is going to be taken away from Israel. In Matthew chapter 21, you might remember that Jesus told the parable of the vineyard with the wicked tenants. And the parable conveyed to the audience that this was really speaking directly about the leadership of first century Judaism. And they became offended because they knew he was talking about them. They were the wicked tenants. And listen to what Jesus says to them in Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And you know what he means there? He's telling the Jews, I am taking the kingdom away from you. You have been evil tenants. You have not paid your dues. You have not treated my servants respectfully. You have killed my son. I am taking it away from you, and I'm giving it to the Gentiles who will produce the fruit and will pay their share. So, is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel? No, it's going to be taken away from Israel and given to the Gentiles. Well, then lastly, this question raises an issue about end times. 
The word restoration is really the key here. The restoration of the kingdom. According to first century Jewish thinking, this was a crucial part of God's end times plan. The restoring of the kingdom to Israel. And this is something that they drew out of numerous Old Testament prophecies. And as you read those Old Testament prophecies, often at the end of the prophecy, Israel is seen in its glory and beauty restored. And so that's kind of the end of the whole plan. The last chapter is the restoration of Israel. And that brings everything to its conclusion. So reading between the lines here, I think this question can really be viewed as a question about end times. Are we there yet? Is this the end times? Is this the precursor that we have always heard was coming? Now, again, let's not be too hard on these disciples. They had lived through Jesus' whole earthly ministry. They had seen him resisted and opposed, arrested and convicted and sentenced and crucified and now risen from the dead and about to go to heaven. And it's very natural that they would think, well, this is the end. This is the end of the world. This is the the epilogue, the final word at the end of the final chapter. And we're just about to see all of these signs predicted in the prophets coming true. So is this the end times? And briefly, Jesus responds and indicates, no, no, we're not at the end times. Rather, we are at the opening of a huge new chapter in God's redemptive plan. So don't think that this pretty much wraps it all up and there's nothing left but the shouting. No, 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 no. We're going into something that is going to be different and big and wonderful and glorious. We are about to enter the new covenant. We are about to see the church born. We are about to enter a glorious period of ingathering of souls so that heaven will eventually be filled with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So don't think it's over, friends. No, we're kind of just getting started here. Well, a marvelous part of this new chapter will be the mission of the apostles. And the mission of the apostles really the mission of the church, begins with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, as the Holy Spirit comes upon you, as you are baptized from on high in and with the Spirit, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit is bringing his omnipotence to you, and he is filling you with spiritual power for doing what you are called to do. Now I go back to my introductory questions. 
Are you afraid to share your faith with a non-Christian? Do you feel awkward and nervous about talking about Christ to an unbeliever? Do you feel powerless to do evangelism? Well, you know, look to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and He will empower you to do evangelism. I can guarantee that if you try to do evangelism in your own strength, you are going to predictably fail. But if you will rely upon the Holy Spirit of God, you will have all of the power that you need to do evangelism. And I think there is a very sweet connection that's here in this passage, but was also there in Isaiah 44. The Spirit comes so that the people of God may witness to the truth. He brings power from on high, and that power will overcome your natural timidity and your understandable fears. And you will open your mouth and speak for Him in His power and His strength. And you know, if you really lack the power, it's as simple as just praying. Lord, just as you gave the apostles power in Acts chapter 1, give me the power I need to speak for you and to see men and women come to faith in Christ. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, what were they to do? You shall be my witnesses, Jesus says. It is witness-bearing. Witnessing. Well, what is a witness? A witness is someone who has seen something, who knows something, who is privy to first-hand information. And that witness tells what he knows. The witness narrates what he has seen. If you're walking down the street and you look into the road and you see one vehicle hit another vehicle, you may very well be called to the court as a witness of the event. And so what would the court want you to say and to do? Well, they want you simply to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And to tell it about what you actually saw. They don't really want you to talk about other things. Theories of car design, the effects of weather upon driving conditions, the prospects that the Milwaukee Bucks will win the NBA championship this year. None of that matters to them. They don't care about your opinions. They want to know, what did you see? Tell us what you know about this. And so, as Jesus' followers, we are simply called to testify to the world about what we know about Jesus Christ and how he has saved sinners like us. You see, this is not rocket science. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in theology to do evangelism. All you have to do is open up your mouth and be willing to say, Jesus died to save sinners. And through his death, I was forgiven. 
and have new life. Could you say that? I mean, honestly, could you say that or something to that effect? Surely you could. In the power of the Spirit. Just bear witness to what you know. Well, Pastor, I don't know a lot. Well, I would say, keep paying attention. (laughs) And go ahead and open your mouth about what you do know. And if you know nothing else, you know, Jesus died to save sinners. You know that, don't you? Sure you do. You you can say that much, can't you? And could God use that simple statement to bring someone else to saving faith? Surely he could. And that would be a good thing. To just simply tell what you know. Well, empowered by the Spirit, these witnesses now needed a roadmap for their ministry a strategy for their witness-bearing. And Jesus is very plain here. Start in Jerusalem, move next to all Judea and also to Samaria, and then when you finish there, go to the remotest parts of the earth. This is so entirely sensible. You are there in Jerusalem receiving the Spirit on Pentecost. And so, bear witness in Jerusalem. That's vitally important for the cleaning out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be ground zero for the church. But then, go out to the villages and towns of Judea, that largely resistant southern part of the nation of Israel. Go to the Jews first, Jesus had said. But don't forget about the Samaritans. You know the Samaritans, those half-Jews who were ethnically and theologically different in many different respects. Oh, and also, don't forget about the Gentiles. Don't overlook the Greeks and the Romans, the barbarians, the Scythians, the slave and the free. Don't forget about the whole world. Well, for the apostles in the first century... This was great news, and it was a tremendous strategy. Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses going from Jerusalem progressively to the ends of the earth. But this works for us today, too. In the power of the Spirit, we can and we should evangelize locally and regionally and cross-culturally, and internationally. Sheboygan. Sheboygan County. Southeast Wisconsin. The greater Milwaukee area. Chicago. China. Uzbekistan. Saudi Arabia, Brazil, New Zealand, Nigeria, even Antarctica, and everywhere else too. We have a duty and a privilege to be the Spirit-empowered witnesses for Christ here at home throughout our region, 
across cultural barriers and to the very ends of the earth. What Jesus called his apostles to do, he continues to call his church to do today. As we go, wherever we go, we are to be making disciples of all nations, baptizing in them into the name of the triune God, and teaching them to obey whatsoever Christ has commanded. And lo, he is with us to the end of the age. This is his will for us today, that we too would be his witnesses. Let me just give you a pastoral commendation. Several months ago, I don't remember exactly when this was, I remember challenging you pretty pretty directly and pretty strongly to think about ministry to the community, outreach. And since that challenge was, was issued, I have seen a number of people really pouring themselves into local outreach and doing things either individually or in organized ministries to get the gospel out to our community. And you're really to be commended for that. You took that seriously, and you've been doing that. But we dare not rest on our laurels and say, wow, we've got a few little trophies in our trophy case now, and we can just sit back and enjoy the rest of our lives until we die. Our whole lives, even in our later years are to be poured out for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ in this world. And let me say a special word to those who are retired or who are looking at retirement. Retirement is one of the best times to be involved in ministry. And the reason I say that is because you're letting go of some of your vocational duties that keep you busy for 60 to 70 hours a week. And you have time and energy that you haven't had for most of your vocational life. And you are a more experienced and veteran Christian now than you were 20, 30, 40 years ago. This is an excellent time for you to be doing ministry. And not to embarrass them, but I've been so pleased with what Brian and Dorothy have done since they've come. They haven't come to Sheboygan just to kind of cocoon, to hide. These people are powerhouses of ministry. Or look at Don and Pam, what they've done over the years. Now, as veteran saints, you can do much good for the kingdom of God in the freedom you have because you're retired. And the idea that retirement from your vocation means you retire from your life and your Christian duties is simply not a biblical concept. You know, you can retire from your vocational work. That's fine. and No issues there. But don't retire from Christianity. Don't retire from kingdom service. If anything, put the pedal to the metal. Now is the time to serve. And, and that opportunity will come to us all. 
There will come a day when we will have that kind of flexibility in our schedule. Let us use it to the glory of God and to the spread of his kingdom. And, and what a great heritage we would leave behind if we could say in our later years we were extremely fruitful for God's kingdom. And we were seeing people coming to faith in Christ, and we were seeing people discipled in the truth as we are into our 70s, our 80s, yea, into our 90s. I look at my dad. My dad's in his 80s. And he's still in fairly good health, but he's kind of slowing down. You know what he loves the most? He loves doing Bible studies, teaching people the Word of God. And I'm so proud of my dad that he doesn't just go off and play golf and go fishing every day. But he loves to be involved in the work of the Lord and advancing the kingdom. And that really should be the attitude that we all have, that as we still have opportunity, let us use our energy to bear witness for Christ to a people who are lost and dead in their sins. And may God use us, may he richly use us for the advancement of his kingdom and for the glory of the great king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your spirit and empowering us so that we might bear witness effectively to your grace, to the salvation that comes through Christ. Lord, we are weak, but we are willing. Please use us and bring others to the truth through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.